Amen. You can be seated this morning. If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you this morning to open up with us to uh, Exodus chapter uh, 23. Exodus chapter 23. We have been walking through the book of Exodus as a church during the year of 2019. For those of you who are wondering and are maybe thinking, we've kind of gotten bogged down in these laws for the last few months. Uh, We are going to finish Exodus by the end of 2019, Lord willing. Uh, We're going to, in a few weeks, we're going to push fast forward a little bit. And uh, we're going to continue to walk through each and every one of these verses and try to point out their significance to our lives. But as we do that, uh, we're going to get to some sections uh, about tabernacle constructions and priest garments that we're going to cover a few chapters in a week, if that makes sense. Uh, so we're going to start moving at a little bit more of a rapid click uh, clip shortly. So uh, Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through uh, 9. I don't usually do this, uh, but Byron, could you come up here for just a minute? you got a Bible? Super. Um, I'm going to hand this to him. He's going to read this passage for us so that I can put my microphone on. Uh, And uh, Exodus 23, just 1 through 9. It says, Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Amen. Thanks, brother. What do you do when something is going on in your workplace that isn't right? Everyone knows about it, including you, but no one will do anything about it. What do you do when someone is getting blamed for a crime and you know they didn't commit it, but the problem is is it was one of your friends who did commit it? What do you do when someone in your church is living a double life and is bringing disrepute to the name of Christ with the way that they're living and yet you are one of only a few who are aware of this double life? What do you do when the Bible calls you to tell the truth and to pursue justice. But if you actually do that, it's going to hurt you financially and socially. In a fallen world, these are the kinds of situations that we will find ourselves in. And God's Word, always sufficient, always enough, provides answers to those kinds of questions about justice and truth 
and righteousness. We've seen week after week in Exodus how God has saved His people Israel from their bondage in Egypt, how He's sustained them through their wilderness wanderings, and now how He's entered into a covenant with them, calling them to follow Him as King and to obey His laws. After the Ten Commandments, which many of us are familiar with, He gets into this section we're in this morning, the book of the covenant, where God is giving Israel principles for how to apply the Ten Commandments in day-to-day life. Many of these laws, as we've seen week after week, we don't really understand, at least at first, how they apply to us. Many of them don't apply to us in exactly the same way they did to Israel. And yet, on these laws, underneath these laws, we see God's unchanging character where we see that He is good and righteous and just and He is the standard of truth. So our text this morning that Byron just read deals with truth and justice among God's people. It deals with how to answer those kind of questions that we will all find ourselves struggling to think through. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to unpack those verses. And the first thing that I want you to see is this reality, that truth and justice matter to God. Truth and justice matter to God specifically, no matter what the world says, no matter who is involved, and no matter the benefits at stake. Truth and justice matter to the God of the Bible, no matter what the world says, no matter who's involved, and no matter what benefits are at stake. I want to walk through those three one by one. The first, it matters to God, no matter what the world says. Look at verse 1. After saying to not spread a false report, God says, don't join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. This description of those who will join the hands with a wicked man or or pervert justice is that they are wicked. And when I think of wicked, I can't help But think about Psalm 1, a passage uh, that I was challenged as a new believer to learn as an 18-year-old. And I've since tried to teach my kids. And what Psalm 1 says is this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor stands in the seat of the scoffer, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but... The blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And then a few verses later it says, The wicked are like chaff, what's left over after the harvest. Chaff that the wind drives away. And then it says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor will sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. The hymn book of Israel, the Psalms, begin with this psalm that calls the reader to be a blessed man who loves God and loves His Word, not to be a wicked man. There's a way of life and a way of thinking that rages against God and His good design. This way of thinking, this way of life is short-sighted, only focused on the temporary, not the eternal. This way of thinking is selfish. 
This way of life doesn't live saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, but my kingdom come, my will be done. This way of thinking, this way of living does not care about what God's standards are. They will create their own rules. Does not care about God's glory, but only our own. This way of living and thinking is described in the Bible as wicked. And the Bible says that everyone who has Adam's blood coursing through their veins, that's all of us, has inherited a wicked, sinful nature. This is the state of the fallen world who chooses to rage against God and make their own rules and make their own standards. And yet God, in His Word, God has called His people, chosen by Him, called by His name, to be different. He's called them to be distinct. He's called them to not look like the people on TV, to not look like the people on Netflix, to not look like the people in their workplace, but to be different. To be distinct from the world around us. God calls His people not to be guided by their selfish sin nature inside, not to be guided by the fallen world outside, but instead to be guided by God's good and faithful and sufficient Word. Because God is the standard of all truth. God is the standard of all goodness. God is the standard of all beauty. And He calls His image bearers to reflect those virtues in their lives. That's why God says here, through Moses, to His people, don't join hands with the wicked. That's why He says in the next verse, verse 2, don't fall in line with the many to do evil and pervert justice. Friends, being in the majority does not make you right. But we all will feel pressure in this life to join the majority, to take the path of least resistance. But remember our Savior's words in Matthew 7, 13, enter by what? The narrow gate. Why? For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. The majority are not trying to enter by the narrow gate. The majority in our world are not trying to live for the Lord and surrender to Jesus as King. The majority in your workplace, in your community... In your world, the majority cares not about God. But we are called to not join in with the many to do evil. It's not difficult to live in rebellion to God. If you choose to live your life for yourself and your own kingdom and only for this life and not eternity, you will have many companions who will encourage you along the way. It's not difficult to fall in line with the majority. But it takes courage. It takes conviction. It takes a willingness, oftentimes, to even face consequences if you will stand for the truth and do what is right and live for God. And God demands that His people Israel tell the truth and pursue justice no matter what the world says, no matter what the majority says. This applies specifically here into the courtroom. 
where he's saying don't bring a false report in order to get someone condemned for something that they didn't do, but it also applies to all of our lives. Because there is no square inch of your entire life that God cannot point to and say, mine. As God's new covenant people, the same principle is true of us today, of what he calls Israel to in Exodus 23. In our churches, in our homes, in our workplaces, we are called to do what is right and what is just. We are called to tell the truth and to pursue justice even if we are the only one doing it. We might be the only person in our family who's willing to do what is right. Do what is right anyway. We might be the only person in our workplace who's willing to do the just and righteous action. Will you fall in line with the majority? Or will you do what is right? Friends, God cares about truth and justice no matter what the world says, no matter what the majority says. And this is something I want you to feel in your bones this morning. True Christianity is going to get all up in your business. True Christianity is going to step on your toes. God's going to get into your lives. He's going to get into even the little decisions that you make. Because there are no such thing as little sins. There is no such thing as a little lie. There is no such thing as just a little neglecting of justice in the economy of God. If He is Lord, if He is King, if He is Savior, then He and not the world's values must direct our path. Truth and justice matter to God first, no matter what the world says. But secondly, we see in our text that truth and justice matter to God no matter who is involved. God says in verse 3 and verse 6 that you are not to be partial or you're not to show favoritism to the poor. He says that in verse 3. And then if you skip down to verse 6, he says, nor are you to pervert justice and take advantage of the poor. Now every one of us in this room falls somewhere on the wealth-poverty line. That's just a fact. We all are somewhere on that. Someone in here is the richest person. And someone in here is the poorest person. And that's okay. And God knows who it is. And God knows where you fall. And praise God that that has nothing to do with our standing before Him, right? All of us are somewhere on that line. And we, with a fallen sin nature, are prone to be unjust and untrue in our dealings with others based on where they fall on that line. On one side, we can easily fall into the trap of favoring the rich and taking advantage of the poor who lack the resources to defend themselves in the court of law, but also just in life. Oftentimes in our life and our decisions, we will favor the rich because it seems like losing their approval can seemingly cost us more than losing the approval and the benefits that the poor can give us. That's why James, the apostle in James 2, says what he says. He says, don't show any favoritism. He's talking primarily in the context of the church. Hear what he says. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one with fine clothing, and you tell them, here, sit in this good place, and you tell the poor man, you just go stand over there. 
Have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts? James says don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality to someone based upon how much money they make or what sort of perceived benefit that they can give to you individually or to your church. Why? Because God doesn't need our money. Did you know that God made everything and therefore He owns everything? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God is not impressed with your bank account. God's the one who gave you the breath so you could live. He's the one who gave you the talent and the mind so that you could use that in order to be a good businessman or whatever to make money. He's the one who gave that to you. And it's on loan to you. It's really His. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our influence. The world might be impressed with you. God's not. God is no respecter of persons. And a true man or woman of God will not be impressed by money. We must view people in the church as more than a tithe check. We must view people in our community as more than a connection to help us get what we want. Because the last time I checked... Rich and powerful people in this world also need Jesus and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we must not show partiality and favoritism to the rich and influential in this life. Side note, God regularly chooses to use the poor and the weak and the unimpressive in the world to do things for Him. Why? So that He will get the glory and not that person. So we can fall into that trap. We can also, on the other side, fall into the trap of assuming that poor people are always righteous and never do anything wrong and therefore showing favoritism to them in the courtroom but also in life. When the reality is is that poor people and rich people have a sin nature and are prone to wickedness. God cares about truth no matter your bank account. But He doesn't just care about where you are in the wealth and poverty line. He also cares about truth and justice no matter where your homeland is. God says in verse 9 at the end of the passage that Byron read, Do not oppress the sojourner. We talked about this last Sunday if you were here. And He says, don't do it. Why? Because you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be a foreigner in a strange country. You know what it's like to be treated unjustly because of where you came from. You went through that. In Egypt. So he says and acknowledges it's easy to take advantage of or to neglect the needs of someone who's not from around here. Whether they be from another country as an immigrant. Whether they be from another state. Another part of the country. Whether they be from another city. You just don't understand how we do things around here. He says not to take advantage or neglect justice for those who might be from another part of town. Maybe someone lives on the wrong side of the tracks. Or at least what you consider to be the wrong side of the tracks. Do you treat them exactly the same way with the same principles of justice and righteousness that you would someone else? I hope so. Or maybe it has nothing to do with where you live, but maybe the background you come from. Do you show truth and justice in the same way to someone from a different church denomination as the one that you are in? Our pursuit of truth and justice cannot be dictated by where someone is from. 
Because truth and justice matter to God, no matter our wealth, no matter our homeland, but also no matter whether they are our enemy or our friend. In verses 4 and 5, God says, Go out of your way to help your enemy. How? When you see their animal straying, don't just look the other way and say, Not my problem. Instead, go and get the animal and take it back home. Or if you come upon your enemy and his beast of burden, his donkey has fallen under his burden and he can't get him out himself and he can't help, he says, don't just say, you're getting what came to you. You shouldn't have treated me that way. He says, step in. Help. The reason? Because we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, no matter the neighbor. God expects that His people will not neglect to do what is right and what is just and help someone in need just because of bad blood in the past. In fact, these commands here are more than likely the foundation of Jesus' later commands in the Sermon on the Mount where He says, don't retaliate when wronged by an enemy. Give more than what's asked of you. Go the extra mile. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? This is his words. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You love your enemy. Why? Because God has loved you, his enemy, who was spit, you were spitting in his face with your life. You are raging against Him. He totally should have given us what we deserved. But in grace, He showed love to His enemies. While we were still enemies, God demonstrated His love for us through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8. He doesn't say, just act cordial towards your enemy, but keep your distance so you don't fly off the handle at them. That's not what he says. He says, actively seek to sacrificially serve them. Why? Because that is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And God's power that we just sang about is powerful enough to change you, change your thinking, change your life, change your actions, so that you can show grace to those who don't deserve it, just as God has shown it to you. And as you do that, oftentimes what we will find is that our enemies will be confused by why we continue to be long-suffering and patient and gracious. They will wonder what's different than us. They will eventually realize that we are for them, not against them. And that is how God can, train, can make enemies into friends. Truth and justice matter to God. No matter who's involved, whether it be the poor, the foreigner, or your enemy. But not only does truth and justice matter to God, no matter what the world and the majority says, no matter who's involved, but also no matter the benefits at stake. God knows that in our life, we know, we've all experienced this in some way, that you can receive personal benefits by telling a lie or by not being just. He knows that that's a temptation. He knows that's coming Israel's way. So he says, what he says in verse 8, we should take no bribes because they blind our sight and they lead us to subvert 
righteousness. Bribes make us blind to doing what is right. Bribes make us not care about justice and righteousness. Friends, in our world, there is a constant power struggle going on where people are trying to get what they want. And some will often entice you to help them get what they want by sweetening the pot a little bit for you. Some in our world have the mentality that anyone can be bought and that everyone has a price. For this or that benefit, you might be tempted to look the other way or let something go that should be dealt with. Or sometimes this bribe will not involve them telling you they'll give you something, but instead threatening you that they'll take something away if you don't do what they want. I'll withhold this benefit that you've been enjoying. They draw a line in the sand and they say, these are my terms. Take it or leave it. You want that promotion to help your family out? Then look the other way when this unjust practice in the workplace is going on. You want to win a title as a coach and get job security for the next few years? Then play that star athlete who has a terrible attitude and is failing math. You want to get elected for local office? You want to help the greater good of your political party? Then tell a half-truth and make up some stories to smear the reputation of your opponent. It's for the greater good. You want my tithe check to continue coming in to help you keep your job, Pastor? Then preach the way I want and do this or that ministry. You want to keep your life, John the Baptist? Then stop preaching against King Herod's sin. You want to stay alive, Jesus? Then stop raging against the tradition that is established and keep your mouth shut. Whether you're being tempted with promotions, with success, with your future, with your livelihood, even with your very life, there is no place for taking bribes in the sight of God. My wife Kelly and I like to watch the old TV drama 24, where Agent Jack Bauer saves the world season after season, almost always dealing with terrorist threats that are coming against the nation. In that show, there's a constant refrain from the fictional leaders of the country that we don't negotiate with terrorists. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Side note, I often use that phrase with my children when they're trying to manipulate me, (laughs) pretending that they have any say in some matter, not acknowledging that this is a dictatorship, not a democracy. They don't understand it, but one day when we watch 24 together, they will and they'll appreciate their dad's humor. But there's a principle behind that phrase, we don't negotiate with terrorists. There's a principle that's important for us to see and I hope to feel, and it's this. When it comes to truth and justice, you don't budge. You don't compromise, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. I'm going to say that again. When it comes to truth and justice in God's eyes, you don't budge, you don't compromise, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. And if you're going to live your life that way for God, then it's going to take conviction. 
It's going to take courage and it's going to take faith that God is sovereign and He's got you. He's holding you. He'll protect you no matter the consequences if you do what is right. Sometimes doing what's right will cost you your life. But the logic Jesus uses in the Gospels is, listen, the worst they can do is kill you. That doesn't sound very encouraging. But it is. The worst they can do is kill you. They can't touch your soul. They can't touch your eternity. They can't touch your inheritance. It takes conviction and courage and faith to live like that. It will sometimes make you unpopular. God forbid we not have man's approval. But friends, when you are empowered with conviction and courage and faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you can receive any bribe in the world, you can receive any threat in the world, and you can look that person in the eye and boldly declare, I cannot be bought. I'm a man or woman of conviction, and men and women of conviction are not afraid of consequences. So do what you want. God is true. God is just. God is righteous. God is king. He rules me, not you. Put me in jail. Take my life. Fire me. God who is sovereign has got me. My hope and peace and security is not built upon you and what you can offer me. That's that's the mentality. Truth and justice matter to God. No matter what the world says, no matter who's involved, no matter what personal benefits you might lose, but our text tells us something more. It doesn't just tell us that those things matter to God, it also tells us what happens if we withhold truth and justice in the way we live our lives. It tells us what it looks like if we are a liar who is unjust and unrighteous. It tells us what our life looks like. If we go the way of the world, if we live our lives no different from the world, and there's two options. Option one, withholding truth and justice results in God's judgment falling on you after a life enslaved to sin. That's the first option. Look at verse 7. Don't miss it. It tells us what's at stake for Israel. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. Why? For I will not acquit the wicked. I will not acquit the wicked. God will not overlook evil. He will not overlook unjust actions. He will not overlook wickedness. He is God. He is good. He is righteous. He is just. He will always do what is right. He is no moral coward who's afraid to uphold justice. He will not acquit the wicked. That shouldn't surprise us if we know our Bibles. This is the same God who sent the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea upon Egypt for doing what? For refusing to submit to God. For unjustly holding God's people in bondage. This is the same God just in the book of Exodus who said back in Exodus 25 not to make graven images. Why? 
He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 20, verse 7. Why should we not take the name of the Lord in vain? Because God says, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. Last week, Exodus 22, verse 23, says this. If you mistreat a widow or the fatherless, I will hear their cry. My wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children will become fatherless. Exodus twenty two twenty seven. If you take advantage of the poor, I will hear their cry for I am compassionate and I will hold you accountable. It's clear from all these passages in Exodus and from the big picture of the Bible that God is just and righteous and we all will be held accountable to Him. Justice will reign in God's created order because He is King and He is just. So he says in verse 7, I will not acquit the wicked. Now we all know intuitively that it's good for God to be just and do what is right. When we come face to face with undeniable evil, what do we cry out for? We cry out for justice. We cry out for God to do something, for God to act, for God to hold people accountable, for God to put down evil. That's what we want when we see injustice and unrighteousness in the world, when we come face to face with undeniable evil. But what about when it's our evil? What about when it's our evil or our injustice or our selfishness? Or what about when it's my lie or my pride or my little sin or my idolatry? Then what do we want? We don't want justice. We want grace and mercy and forgiveness. But friends, God's standard is perfection and we all deserve His judgment. If you don't believe that, then all that stuff we just sang about Jesus isn't going to compute up here because you think you're a pretty good person and you're grading yourself on the curve and you're looking at other people and you're saying, at least I don't do that, and at least I don't do that, and at least I don't do that. And God's saying, you deserve my judgment. That's why many a faithful pastor have went down the Romans road again and again and again with their congregation. Because the only way for us to truly be saved is for us to recognize our unfixable problem. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We have earned the judgment of God. That should be our destiny. After a life enslaved to sin, after a life of worshiping ourselves, living for our own kingdom, valuing the things of the world, going our own way, ignoring God, being bored with God, loving what God has made more than we love Him, loving ourselves more than our neighbors, we deserve the eternal and just wrath and judgment of a righteous God. Why? Because God will not acquit the wicked. But hallelujah, there's another option. Hallelujah, hope has come and He has a name, Jesus. These are the options according to the Bible. Withholding truth and justice in the way that we live our life will result in God's judgment falling on you after a life enslaved to sin or 
God's judgment will result in His judgment falling on Jesus in your place, paying your penalty and empowering you to be just. Being spiritually dead and blind with no desire to follow God or submit to Him, we are left guilty, we are left helpless, we are left hopeless. But God. But God. If you've been coming to Sunday school, you've been walking through Ephesians, if you haven't been coming to Sunday school, I'd encourage you to come to Sunday school. How's Ephesians 2 start? But we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that you need better self-esteem. Not that your sin's not a big deal. Not that you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Not that you can do enough works. Not that you can attend church enough. Not that you can go to Sunday school. Not that you can give your way through the time to heaven, but God in His grace and mercy sent His Son Jesus who stepped off the throne to identify with us and make a way of salvation and uphold God's justice by paying our penalty, by empowering us to live for Him. That is the gospel. That's what we believe. That's the foundation of our faith. That's why we sing. That's why this church exists. That's what the Bible's all about. And we have to feel it and love it because that is our story. That is our song. That is our life. That is our calling. That's it. That's the good news. And if we don't feel that, then we need to spiritually wake up. Because that's the greatest news in all the world. Because our greatest problem is not that our finances are tight. It's not that our marriage is on the rocks. Our biggest problem is not that we keep on giving in to this or that temptation. It's not that we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Our biggest problem is not what we've lost in the past, but it is that we stand as enemies before a holy and righteous God, but He has fixed that problem through Jesus. That's our biggest problem. And that is worthy of our attention and our excitement, and our passion, and our heart, and our mind, and our life. So, by God's grace, He made a way. He sent His Son. His Son stepped off the throne of heaven in humility. He added to His divine nature, human nature, so that He could become the God-man, so He could identify with us, so He could go through every bit of temptation and doubt that you and I have ever faced as fallen sinners. But He came and did this. Why? So that He could pave the only path to peace with God that would ever exist. What kind of life did Christ live? He grew up in what kind of family? A poor family who could not afford the proper kind of sacrifice to offer to God. He grew up part of His life in a foreign country, 
of Egypt while his family was running away from the tyrannical king of Israel who was trying to put to death the Messiah. Jesus understood being poor. Jesus understood being a sojourner far from home. He understood the types of injustices that you will often face in this life when that is your story. But being sinless, Jesus always did what is right, always obeyed God's law, always spoke the truth. He even showed grace and mercy to his enemies. In fact, Jesus didn't just only speak the truth, but he claimed in John 14, 6, that He was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was truly righteous. Jesus was innocent of all sin. Jesus deserved blessing and glory and honor and power and eternity and inheritance. But what happened? Because of Jesus' truth-telling, because of Jesus' righteous life, He was falsely accused by wicked men and malicious witnesses who would pervert justice to get what they wanted. Jesus was totally innocent, totally righteous, but He was killed unjustly as a result of false charges and lies and injustice. And every person involved in that most evil act of of injustice in history, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, the high priest, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews, the Gentiles, the guards, every one of them will be held accountable to God. Why? Because God will not acquit the wicked. But hear me, on the Roman cross, something else was happening. Jesus was not only dying at the hands of the wicked... Something Exodus 23 says should never happen, but he was also dying for the sins of the wicked. While he was on the cross, Jesus wasn't only facing an unjust execution, he was upholding the justice of a holy God who cannot overlook sin because he will not acquit the wicked. While no one came to Jesus' aid to rescue him, he was rescuing people from the rightful, just judgment of God that they deserve. Like a donkey in trouble, lying under our burden. We as sinners are all struck under the burden of our sin and what it deserves. But Jesus doesn't just look at us, His enemies, and pass by unconcerned because of how we spit in His face with our life, but instead He loves His enemies by what? Lifting their burden up off of them and setting them free. How? At the cost of His very life. Our freedom meant the shedding of His blood. Our forgiveness meant the forfeiting of His life. Our peace came at the cost of Him bearing the wrath of God. It's not just Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod and the guards and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews and Gentiles who killed Jesus. It was my sin that held Him there. It was my sin. It was our sin that held Him there. He is the only way of salvation. He is the standard of truth. And He empowers us to live the life that God calls us to live. When we repent of our sins and believe in Him, we are forgiven our sins and we are counted as righteousness, but there's more. And I want you to to hear this more part. We are empowered to be righteous and holy. How? Because when God truly saves you, you don't just get dunked in some water. There's a cross here. You don't just get dunked in some water. You don't just get your name on a member roll. When God saves you, He changes you. He 
transforms you. He empowers you. He breaks your bondage to sin. So that we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. The real Christian life is about so much more than just forgiveness and going to heaven when we die. Praise God for those realities. I'm not denying those realities. But if that's going to happen, something happens down here. If that's real, if that's our future, if that's our inheritance, if that's our destiny, something changes down here. Because the real Christian life transforms and empowers you to obey God, to tell the truth, to be just, no matter what the world says, no matter what the majority says, no matter who's involved, no matter what benefits are at stake. How? We sang it earlier. Because when you truly know Jesus, then you know that He is better than anything this world offers. Even man's applause. Even being approved by the majority. Even untold riches. Even power and prosperity. Jesus is better than all that. You know that when you're saved. When He changes your heart. He know, you know when you're a true believer that Jesus is better than any benefit you could gain by telling lies and being unjust. You know that Jesus is the treasure that you can never lose. Knowing Jesus, hear this, it makes you eternally untouchable. It will make you unafraid of threats, unmoved by bribes. It will make you a man or a woman of conviction who will do what is right no matter what because this life is not your own. It is God's and it was purchased by Jesus. Jesus, and you will be with Him forever, and you will never in eternity say, God asked too much of me. Ever. You know that to be true. If you know Christ, you're eternally untouchable. And that helps us to live as men and women of courage and conviction who will do what is right no matter what. Are you that type of person? Do you know Jesus in a way Like I'm describing. Do you know Jesus in this saving and transforming and conscience binding and conviction building way? I pray that you do. I hope that you do and I pray that you never think that you outgrow the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you don't, if you don't know Him in that kind of way, then I pray that today you will cling to the cross of Jesus Christ by faith, that you will repent and believe in the way and the truth and the life Jesus Christ. Salvation only comes through Him. Only He can make you just and righteous. Only He can forgive you. Only He can empower you. Run to Him today. Eternity is at stake. It was our sin that held Him there on that cross. It was our lies. It was our injustice. But it is God's grace alone that saves. And we are never too far gone to come back home to God the Father and to King Jesus. His arms are open. His grace is offered. Run to Him today. Father God, I thank You this morning for Your grace and Your mercy. 
I acknowledge this morning, God, that I need this grace and mercy, not just on the first day of my salvation, God, but I need it every day of my life. God, I pray that if Your Spirit is at work in any way, if it's brought conviction, if it's brought boldness, if it's encouraged us in the Gospel in any way, if it's challenged us, if we need to repent, if we need to believe, if we need to renew our relationship with You, God, that You will empower us by faith to act, to talk to our neighbor, to come talk to me after the service, to sit where we are and pray. God, help us to do business with You. Help us to not be unmoved by Your Word and Your truth. God, I pray that You'll help us to honestly look at our lives. God, help us to believe that Jesus is better, that Jesus is the treasure. God, give us hope and peace in the midst of our anxiety. Be the rock we can stand on in the midst of our suffering. God, give us the grace of repentance when we're living in sin. Give us an eternal perspective that's not focused on this world, but focused on You. God, give us hearts that desire to tell the truth and do what is right, no matter the cost. God, we pray that You will conform us into the image of Christ and help us to live for You. And we know that that's only possible as we consider Your deep, deep love for us that was most beautifully manifested on the cross of Calvary. God, as we close now, as we sing, we pray that You will be magnified. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.